Fringed with Mud and Pearls, An English Island Odyssey by Ian Crofton, published by Berlin Books. Back in 2013, I walked the border between England and Scotland and wrote a book about it. After that, I turned my thoughts to the other edges of England, in particular its coasts and, more specifically, its offshore islands, or at least some of them. Except one day that spring, I was rock climbing in the Peak District when, I'm told, although I don't remember anything about it, I fell 30 feet and landed on my head and suffered severe traumatic brain injury, double vision, fatigue, and what they call executive dysfunction. And that for me meant I couldn't organize a thing and was very confused, very anxious and pretty down. But in the end, I had a lot of help from a very good neuropsychologist who encouraged me to resume my islands project. Once a week, I tried to get out of London, do some exploring, talk to some people, start making notes and writing again. And it was like a journey of recovery, a difficult way back to the place I was before I fell. And now you're about to hear some excerpts from the book that resulted. Greece has its sun-soaked Cyclades and Dodecanese, Scotland the chilly Northern Isles, the rain-drenched Hebrides, Wales has the island of 20,000 saints, Ireland the Skelligs, those fangs in the Atlantic where monks once prayed in small stone huts, surrounded only by gannets and God. And what has England got? The Isles of Canvey, Sheppey, Falness, White and Dogs, Mercy, Wallasey, Two Tree and Rat. There are also wilder, rockier places. Lundy, the Isles of Scilly, the Farns. England is surrounded by a fringe of mud and pearls. Tidal flats and marshes, holiday parks and petrochemical works, jagged cliffs and golden beaches. Islands are elemental places, parcels of land circled by the sea. Earth and water are shaped by a third element, air. The wind raises waves, blows sand, erodes stone. Islands formed from granite or dolerite hold a memory of the fourth element, fire, the molten heat from which they were born. Such rocky islands are distinct from the liquid element, firm, hard, immutable as pearls. Others are less distinct, their chalks and clays crumbling constantly into the sea. Sometimes the boundary between earth and water is even murkier. This is the realm of sand, even more the realm of mud. Sandbanks and mud flats shift, dissolve, reform. Along soft coasts, the sea penetrates the land, washes it away. Elsewhere, silt and gravel build up and the sea recedes. Hard or soft, islands change their size and shape with the twice daily tide, a rhythm determined by the distant moon. Inflow, outflow, like a jellyfish moving through the water, 
or a body breathing. When we think of an island, we think of isolation, a place cut off from the mainstream of life. Islands have become places of refuge, of sanctuary, even of holiness. They've also been places to build prisons, dump rubbish, bury the dead, locate secret military installations. People on the mainland often fantasise about islands as unspoilt Edens, where they imagine themselves leading untroubled, innocent lives. Such fantasies may also lead to dreams of power, of ruling over a small personal kingdom, free from outside interference. Gulls in great numbers were making their usual din. Then I saw the white of an avocet, its wings barred with black. It was joined by another avocet. They wheeled in fast, nervous circles. I thought of the souls of the unburied dead, destined to haunt the wrong bank of the sticks for a hundred years. Then the peace I shared with the breeze and the songs of larks was broken by a loud bang. Over on Falness, the MOD's forbidden island, a plume of black smoke rose into the sky. Britain's weapons were being tested. The Isle of Dogs. The very name evokes a brutish kind of place, a dead end abandoned by humans, drained of any last drop of pity. It brings to mind a dystopia of deserted, ruined streets, a nightscape where feral packs snarl and sniff for bones around the rims of oil-slick puddles. On an early evening in August, on the last family holiday we had together in Cornwall, my son and daughter joined me at the top of the sea cliffs near Senan. The air was still, the light clear, and there, far beyond longships, among the pink and grey streaks of the western sky and the western ocean, appeared a pattern of rocky islets. They could have been set on the surface of the sea, or they could have been floating in the air. They were undoubtedly real, and yet completely unattainable. These were the Isles of Scilly. The western tide crept up along the sand, and o'er and o'er the sand, and round and round the sand, as far as eye could see. The rolling mist came down and hid the land, and never home came she. It was sixty years since I'd last been on the Isle of Wight. Leaving the island, I felt flat on the train back to London. I'd spent a few days travelling through time, reversing the passage of decades, and now I had to resume the journey in the direction of my own mortality. The island itself was also on a one-way journey, a victim of entropy, heading towards disorder and dissolution as it washed away into the sea, dreaming itself into oblivion. <laughs> 